The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It comes down to uh, two main things, which is two things that Putin likes to weaponize, right? It's history and memory, and the two are obviously related, but they're not quite the same thing. He's trying to build a legacy for himself. He's trying to rebuild the Russian Empire. I mean, we've been saying this for some time, and people would look at us as though we were mad. And I think uh, we couldn't have been proven more right now with the invasion of places like uh, Kherson. And, and it's not just Kherson, Zaporizhia is obviously trying to get all of Odessa and the rest of it, you know, anywhere where he can claim that there is a high Russian population, he's going to reclaim it as sort of an ethno-nationalist without ever claiming to be so. And it's, it's quite an interesting move for him, uh, not least because he spends so much of his time, or his uh, country's money at least, trying to convince the world that they are some kind of anti-imperialist power. They're the last and biggest imperialist power uh, in the 21st century at the moment. So his entire strategy is about his legacy and the future history, if you like, of Russia. I'm Tyler McBrien, Managing Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 11th, 2022. Last week, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced the illegal annexation of the Ukrainian region of Kherson, along with others. In the months leading up to the sham referendum that solidified the annexation, the Kremlin launched a forced assimilation campaign that targeted nearly every aspect of daily life in Kherson. I sat down with Belen Carrasco Rodriguez and Tom Southern of the Center for Information Resilience to talk through their research into the means used to establish and strengthen Russian occupational rule over the seized territories. We discussed this Russian playbook for control and the ways that forced assimilation may be working or not. It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 11th, the Russian occupation of Kherson, Ukraine. Uh, I first want to start with the Eyes on Russia project, uh, which is the series. Why did you launch the Eyes on Russia project, and, and can you tell us just a bit about it? So we launched Eyes on Russia because we've got quite a long-standing history of blending what we would call uh, open-source intelligence with counter-disinformation programming, and we uh, have observed Russia for a very, very long time. In the build-up to the invasion, I mean, it was our hunch, it was our belief that they were going to invade despite what they were saying, and, and one of the things that we wanted to do was to document it and get the proof to to prove the lie, really, of, of what the Kremlin was saying. So initially, this project actually was started looking inside Russia and inside Belarus at troop movements, because the idea was that we could identify relatively easily, to be honest, through social media, through CCTV, a number of other things, uh, troop movements, you know, the trucks, the tanks, whatever it might be, to prove that the, the build-up itself wasn't some form of exercise, right? It wasn't 
any kind of maneuver. They certainly didn't need the kind of equipment that they were taking, nor the numbers of people that they were taking, um, if they were just going to sort of uh, wave the saber a little bit and and try and you know get Ukraine to concede on something and then pull back. We knew it was going to be invasion, so that's that's why we started doing it. Ultimately, when the invasion happened, we turned much more to documenting uh, the impact on people, on civilian infrastructure, on land, you know, war crimes, humanitarian uh, effect, everything else. And again, it's it's fundamentally down to accountability. I think. The Kremlin has a long-standing history of believing that it can operate with impunity, both in terms of warfare and in terms of uh, the disinformation side. And I mean, often that's been the case, right? I mean, they've taken chunks out of Georgia, they've taken chunks out of Ukraine, nobody really did anything. And I think they thought, again, that would be the case this time. They sort of massively misunderstood and uh, underestimated actually what the response was going to be, partially from the West, but also, frankly, from civil society actors like CIR, but also ordinary people uh, across the world. And I must say that the Eyes of Russia project works so well because actually what we've done is we've hoovered up a lot of volunteers who were already doing OSINT off their own back, as well as a number of other well-known entities like Bellingcat. We pulled all of our resources into the same place so that nobody is really doubling up uh, and everybody can take away what they need to from it, but also all of us can hold Russia to account in a much more uh, efficient way than I think was the case before and it's kind of borne a lot of fruit in that regard. It's it's frustrated them quite a lot because the sheer amount of data that we've been able to verify and collate and put out there into sort of package reports, out into the media, out to politicians, out to sanctions bodies or you know, war crimes cases has been such and to such sort of high quality that there's not really much they can do to counter it. And and they sort of doubled down instead of you know, trying to push as many lies as they used to, they're mostly seen now to be focusing on their domestic audience uh, and some of the audiences around the world who might still believe them. And I guess there's still quite a lot of work to do. But ultimately, it's about accountability. Great. And and before we dig into the meat of the report, which there's a lot a lot to get into, I'm curious to, to go back to one of your earlier points that you said you had a hunch that this was the real deal, that Russia would invade. I'm curious what sort of data points informed that or, or, or just prior experience. Belen, I can start with you. Well, I mean, you're going to start with me, but I joined the project actually in May. I started uh, as one of the volunteers. I was associate director in another um, uh, open source intelligence company. And I think that one of the, the key things that ICE and Russia project has had is just it, it gathered all the like experts on the field together first as volunteers and then like like me other people have stayed working on the project but i was working uh, outside and i decided to join i i was uh, like seeing how cdr was covering well that the medical supplies that they were taking with uh, videos with the medical supplies that they were taking i mean they were not representative of military trainings i mean they suggested that something else was going on the amount of military buildup uh, along the border and um, a lot of open source intelligence data uh, and a lot of data points that actually suggested that it was going to be a, some sort of invasion without actually just like receiving any sort of secret intelligence. And I think that this is one of the key things that CAR's activity has highlighted with the Ukraine war. The Ukraine war has been the first event, the first war that we've been able to follow almost live because of the amount of footage that we are receiving and organizations like CAR are able to collect, analyze and verify and cross-check with footage that we have documented from uh, previous days, from previous events. And then just like try to to understand what's going on in the ground. And like, 
I think in the first weeks of the, of the invasion, our work was critical because we were able to provide information to uh, journalists and policymakers of exactly what was going on, but also to inoculate audiences against uh, like Kremlin denial of things that they, they were saying that they were allegedly not happening. But we actually had the evidence, the footage that it was going on, right? So these three pillars were just like very, were essential, I think, at the beginning. It was just like the, the informing policymakers, providing reliable information also to journalists, but at the same time, like informing the, the public because they were receiving information about the war anyway. So just like providing them with the right type of information and the footage that we were receiving, that was key in the beginning of the invasion. Now, fast forward a few months after the invasion, your organization has decided to focus on the occupation of Kherson for this particular report. Um, what's the significance of this region for you, uh, which you've called a test case? Um, so uh, the question is test case for what and, and why, why this particular region for your focus? Kherson was the first major Ukrainian city to face Russian occupation. And uh, it was, uh, so the first, like three cities got invaded the, the same 24th of February, the day uh, when the invasion started. And then on the 2nd of March, Kherson uh, city was, uh, like between the 1st and the 2nd of March, Kherson city um, was taken. And also it's one of the most populated occupied areas right now in Ukraine. Yeah. One of the reasons that we chose uh, Kherson, and it could well have been Zaporizhia for the same reason, but we wanted to focus really specifically uh, on one of the occupied regions because uh, we started getting quite concerned that one of the Kremlin's sort of main strategies is not just attrition in warfare, it's attrition in the info sphere. And we know that there's a lot of noise out there, there's a lot of information, a lot of disinformation about Ukraine and, and life in Ukraine at the moment that's going around. And even uh, some of the people that are feeling best disposed towards Ukraine are fatigued in the form of, you know, seeing too much out there about this. They're, they're tired of war and they're tired of reading about it. And we really wanted to have a sustained series that brought to home exactly what life is like under Russian occupation in these areas, covering, you know, absolutely everything that you could want to know from the cost of a bottle of shampoo to who the death squads are. So there's there's a lot to unpack in there. And we felt like it wouldn't be sensible to try and spread that over, you know, Zaporizhia and Kherson and the Donbass. It'd be much better to focus on one region. And going forward, we're, we're sort of considering how we might continue that, because to maintain that focus in the public's eye is very, very difficult at the moment. There is a lot going on. There's other stuff happening in people's lives, you know, in the UK alone, there's something of a financial crisis going on. There's a cost of living crisis. People are sort of running out of space to think about Ukraine. And yet uh, we need to keep that in people's minds because it's exactly one of the Kremlin's strategies is to make people forget about it or to turn away from it so that they can do what they want. So fundamentally, it is about making sure that people are still aware of what is happening and what the reality of life is in Kherson. It's, it's not any good there. It's not any better just because Russia's taken over and it's been consolidated and the war is open quotes over there. It's not. Uh, and there is resistance and there is oppression and there is hardship. And I think the more that we can sort of bring that home to people, as I mentioned, the, the better it will go for Ukrainians in the longer term. Yeah. And speaking of, of painting a picture for our listeners, uh, I'm not sure if either of you can speak to what Kherson looks like um, as a city, you know, what it's like to experience it uh, as someone who lives there currently. Life is very complicated for people uh, living in Kherson region. Like since the 
indirect coercion that they are experiencing from the occupation administration and like Russian forces saying that they uh, have organized for months door-to-door visits inviting people to get a Russian passport which is just like it's a very intrusive mean of coercion that like Russian soldiers knocking on your doors uh, asking you to take the Russian citizenship also if you for example like like things in the daily life right like if you are a business owner owner or you want to register a business you cannot register it if you don't have now a russian passport you cannot use a ukrainian sim card you cannot uh, drive a car if it doesn't have a russian plate number and for these things you need to get uh, in order your russian papers so actually uh, there like since um, like i would say since mid-april increasingly uh, the occupation administration which is uh, it's coordinated and like receives order by the kremlin um, they have been implementing policies that make life very difficult for those that cannot leave the, the region and don't want to cooperate. At the same time, they have obstructed evacuation routes and it's very difficult also and very expensive uh, to leave uh, the, the region. So it is, it is like very hard life, which um, overlaps with the fact that there's some areas like let's say essential essential services like electricity heating things like this the russian russian forces have taken over the key in- infrastructure but electricity has, is being supplied uh, allegedly still from kiev so there is kind of like this duplication of power that make very difficult for uh, Kherson residents to see just like, okay, who is providing my electricity? Am I going to have heating this winter? Like, are the Russians providing for it? Should I pay in rebels or should I pay in Ukrainian? Ukrainian? So it's, it's very difficult. It's very complex. It's very difficult not to cooperate with occupation authorities, but at the same time, it's very difficult to understand what's going to happen at the basic level in the near future. Yeah, and I think that that duplication you mentioned is captured really well in the report's title of Parallel Worlds. And another line that that really struck me from the report is, soldiers invade, but it's bureaucrats who occupy. Um, So Tom, maybe you can help me out with with this one. You know, I'm curious why the Kremlin needs to essentially russify, if if I'm using that term correctly, the Kherson region. Um, You know, why is it not enough to simply um, invade with soldiers and 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 hold the position uh, militarily? Uh, it's an extremely good question. And it comes down to uh, two main things, which is two things that Putin likes to weaponize, right? It's history and memory. And the two are obviously related, but they're not quite the same thing. He's trying to build a legacy for himself. He's trying to rebuild the Russian empire. I mean, we've been saying this for some time, and people would look at us as though we were mad. And I think uh, we couldn't have been proven more right now with the invasion of places like uh, Kherson. And, and it's not just Kherson and Zaporizhia. He's obviously trying to get all of Odessa and the rest of it. You know, anywhere where he can claim that there is a high Russian population, he's going to reclaim it as sort of an ethno-nationalist without ever claiming to be so. And it's it's quite an interesting move for him, uh, not least because he spends so much of his time or his uh, country's money, at least, trying to convince the world that they are some kind of anti-imperialist power. They're the last and biggest imperialist power uh, in the 21st century at the moment. So his entire strategy is about his legacy and the future history, if you like, of Russia. And he feels very strongly that Russia was aggrieved, that Ukraine has never been its own thing. In fact, I mean, 
theoretically under his his ideology and the ideology of a number of Russian nationalists, there are three types of Russians, right? You've got Russians, Belarusians, and Ukrainians, and they are all one people. They've just got slightly different names for them in Russian. So this is, from his perspective, uh, supposedly correcting a historic wrong. So holding the territory as simply an occupier isn't what he wants to do sort of in the long term. And that's, again, that's why fundamentally we're looking at sort of a banality of evil question, right? We're not looking at the soldiers necessarily taking over everything in the long term. It's the bureaucracy of the thing. It's it's making it so hard for people that they have no choice but to be Russified, for want of a better word. And it's also within that hardship creating sort of bubbles of opportunity, for want of a, a different word. So you can't get the education you wanted anymore in the West. It's blocked to you. So they're giving you these opportunities, as they would call them, to go get educated in Crimea. Uh, you have to operate in rubles now. Well, you have no choice because you need to eat. Maybe your kids will only know rubles and their, their kids will only know rubles. So then everybody is Russified in the long term. It's, it's very much playing the long game in this. And I don't think he particularly cares that he's been ostracized. He certainly doesn't care that uh, so many Russians have died doing it. And he cares even less about the number of Ukrainians, despite uh, what he claims in terms of, uh, open quotes, liberating them. So this is all part of a very, very long game for Putin, whether or not, as the rumours claim, it's because he's now terminally ill. Uh, I have my doubts about that. I think this has been his plan for a long time. We can go back to Ossetia. We can go back you know, to Crimea. None of this is particularly new, but it is a much more advanced version of his, frankly, ethno-nationalism than we've ever seen before. Now, Belen, to go back briefly to some of these methods of occupation that we mentioned, um, Tom, you just mentioned education, and I think this is a, a particularly interesting case, uh, an aspect of the report. Can you talk a bit about what this new academic year was like in Kherson, how it was different uh, or a break from the past? Children have been uh, a target of Russian occupation techniques uh, for, like, since the beginning of the invasion. And this is because uh, to consolidate power in the long term, uh, they can easily like modify the memories of future generations about the war. So uh, they have been, uh, well, not the Kremlin, but the Kremlin through the occupation administration, they have been creating new policies oriented and like they have put a particular effort on creating new policies uh, oriented and targeted at children, especially uh, with the new school year uh, beginning on the 1st of September, that um, are like aimed at creating and generating uh, attitudes favorable to the Russian occupiers and also implementing the Russian uh, educational system in and replicating the Russian um, educational system in Kherson. Uh, one of the key things that I think that um, are most relevant is the, they have been replacing textbooks for first graders, uh, history textbooks, and replacing the Ukrainian ones for the Russian ones. Uh, and these textbooks include sentences like, Russia is our motherland, we need to take care of it. So policies uh, oriented at education are just trying to brainwash children and generate, like, Make them forget that they were once Ukrainians. So now the the, the curriculum um, is taught in the Russian language, and Ukrainian language, if so, can be chosen as uh, as another module. But uh, like the the full program is is taught in Russian. 
and like they have been they are being talked about Russian history as if Kherson had been always Russia. And um, this is uh, aimed at like make them forget that once they were Ukrainian, they, once Kherson was part of Ukraine, maybe like there is some rhetoric anti-Ukrainian. So they just like generate also negative attitudes towards Ukraine. But the main uh, aim is to generate and to make them feel they are Russian and they they should speak, speak Russian. They have like historically always been Russian and the better place for them to study, to grow is Russia. And with this also, we can connect some summer school programs that they've been implementing for children to be in to, to go like from Kherson region and from other occupied areas like from Zaporizhia or uh, to from the Donbass to they have been taken to uh, Russia to summer camps there where they are uh, share experiences with other Russian children and uh, of course this is like a full influence operation right they they are taken from war zones to safe places where they have fun for a few weeks so they connect directly uh, the idea of being safe uh, with being Russian. So there is a full circus around these uh, these uh, like educational uh, policies uh, trying to influence uh, children, not only in Kherson, but in all occupied territories. And Belen, one more quick follow-up for you. You've been reporting across a number of these methods, and I think that really speaks to just how far-reaching and all-encompassing these campaigns have been. Did you find or did you, did you report on any methods that involved direct physical violence toward the occupants of Kherson? Yeah, so we've come across during our investigation with uh, plenty of cases of the occupation administration uh, implemented direct violence uh, against the residents living in occupied areas. Uh, now, like in the in the second part of the series and in the third part of the series, we are looking into this more deeply. But there are lots of cases of uh, abductions, uh, for illegal detentions, when when I was investigating this kind of indirect means of coercion, I came across uh, at least claims of at least four torture chambers that had been established in or a bit outside Kherson uh, City that were uh, uh, detention centers previously, and now they have been just like transformed into torture chambers where partisan like oppositors to the to to the new administration occupation administration are being allegedly held and tortured. Like uh, we are monitoring the disappearance of key Ukrainian leaders that were uh, occupying, well, like positions in the Kherson administration before the invasion. So they have disappeared. So yeah, there is just like the, the, there is just like a full account of uh, direct violence being applied to Kherson uh, residents. And um, I would say that like not necessarily because the bureaucrats have begun implementing the occupation mechanisms, the occupiers, like the military forces stopped applying direct violence. The direct violence definitely has kept going, is still going despite other means to uh, establish power in the long term in the region. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web, 
Data brokers hate delete me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code lawfare20. Now, most of what we've discussed so far has taken place in the physical realm, um, but I'm curious, maybe Tom, you can speak to what this forced assimilation campaign looks like in the digital realm. Um, so what, what is some of the online propaganda techniques that are targeted specifically at Kherson residents? I think probably one of the most interesting ones actually is not necessarily a disinformation campaign, rather part of the bureaucratization of the whole thing, because everybody really at the moment is on Telegram, right? Particularly in Kherson, it's uh, probably the most secure uh, method of getting communications in and out. But one of the things they've done quite successfully is to create a number of uh, administration Telegram accounts, if you like, where they do provide sort of quite general important updates on like where you can collect your pension now or how to get a stamp or, you know, the the food prices or something like that. Obviously, however, smattered within that is a great deal of disinformation and propaganda around sort of uh, what the Ukrainians are up to and what the supposed Nazis are up to. And I think the the interesting thing, the reason that's actually surprising is that Russia is quite blunt, usually with its propaganda, uh, or it has been around Ukraine anyway. And they've realized that they need to be a little more careful with what they do and maybe actually provide people with some services. They're not doing a good job at all of it. I mean, they're doing an atrocious job. But they realize that you can't just propagandize people into submission. You probably need to give them some food and water and bread and circuses and the rest of it. I mean, as I say, they've not done it particularly well. I think the, the other side of it is, you know, the outward facing propaganda that they send out primarily to Russians. They're showing how good a job they're supposedly doing in Kherson. They're obviously not. It reminds me an awful lot. I used to work on ISIS propaganda and counter propaganda, and they, they did very similar things, you know, glossy magazines, uh, lovely videos showing the children eating sweets when obviously actually they were not having a good time at all. So there's, there's a lot of sort of interesting parallels with other authoritarian or terrorist um, entities that have done similar things. I think the, the one thing that we've seen drop off, I would say, is actually a lot of references to some of the, the narratives that they pushed previously that didn't really work. So there was a lot of, uh, initially, both inside Kherson, inside Ukraine, and outside Ukraine, of claims of banderists, which I don't think anybody outside of Ukraine had heard of, uh, Stepan Bandera, the uh, Nazi collaborator in Ukraine who has been dead for a very long time and certainly has no current followers. Um, that seems to have dropped off to the tune of much more, as I say, sort of practical affairs, supposedly showing that uh, the Kremlin, or rather the occupation authorities in the breakaway states, are um, providing the, the services that people need and that the Ukrainians are supposedly shelling them and, and killing them and, and are the, the oppressors in this. I think one question that is likely on our listeners' minds uh, is, is any of this working and how can we tell? Belen, I'll first go to you. Once again, is this campaign working on residents of Kherson? 
and how can we know? I think one 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 way that listeners might be interested in is you know whether this had any bearing on the sham referendum at all, or if that's just something we shouldn't even look at, you know, given the <laughs> obvious problems around it. So, Belen, to you, you know, is any of this working? Well, yes and no. Fear is a, a very strong influence tool. So by uh, coercing them and to imp- uh, by imposing uh, measures that restrict their, their freedom and their freedom to, to be Ukrainian, and just like by uh, detaining, arresting people that are opposed to the occupation administration and not allowing to, to register their businesses to those that refuse to get a Russian passport, they are implementing a policy of fear. And that, of course, for the people that have no opportunity to leave, that has just like made uh, some sort of effect. Um, but I have to say, like with uh, all the data that we've co- we've been collecting, Ukrainians are still very defiant and very resilient, um, despite the 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 Russian Russian powerful occupation or just like the the Russian propaganda being spread to like to spread fear, but also to to say to tell them just like okay, no no worries. I mean, if you if you go along with what we say, then you are safe. Uh, they have been like very resilient and very defiant. I would say that to some extent, those that have no choice, we've seen that, well, I mean, they uh, end up getting a Russian passport or they apply for a pension at the Russian front because they have no other choice. But it is very difficult to to separate like if they are doing that because Russia's propaganda is working or if they are doing that because of fear. So I would say that's the most successful influence uh, technique that they have right now, the Russians have on their side, is fear, which doesn't last forever. Yeah, I suppose it, it depends on on what you mean by working. Um, but Tom, I want to go to you. Um, you mentioned that you, you might have just as easily looked at Zaporizhia, for example. Um, to what extent is this playbook, this very same playbook, being applied to other regions? And to what extent uh, has the Kremlin sort of adapted its approach based on each region? It is very much the playbook that they use. I mean, they, they are relatively accepting that they do need to adapt it to the region. I mean, they obviously had a slightly easier time in the Donbass, perhaps, than they have uh, in either Kherson or Zaporizhia, I think fundamentally what it comes down to to them is the resources that they have curated over the years. So to give a bad metaphor, it's all about whether or not you can push the open door or the door is closed on you, right? So in uh, in parts of the Donbass, they had an excellent network of potential collaborators that they had been curating for years. And so they had, you know, not only potential politicians to run the place, but also, you know, militias that could help them out. And indeed, they could claim that those militias were doing it off their own back, and Russia was merely supporting them. Much more difficult in Kherson and Zaporizhia. So both regions, they have, for a very long time, been curating people primarily in political parties. So the opposition bloc, the opposition platform for life. In Kherson, actually, uh, there, there was also the, uh, the Saldo bloc. There's always these small sort of blocks on the councils. Uh, and the Socialist Party of Ukraine. They basically found people over time, gave them jobs, money, sort of tacit support, moral support, whatever it might be, um, and sort of waited until the invasion before they could activate them, right? And some of them were activated somewhere. And I think the, the interesting thing is how competent those people are. 
that's always going to be the problem for the Kremlin. Because I think even they understood going into Kherson that they weren't going to be able to find the same even small amounts of popular support that they had in some pockets of the Donbass. Those people in the Donbass quickly changing their minds, I think, after Russia took over. But nevertheless, it makes it much more difficult if you don't have a baseline of people who are just going to go along with you. If everybody's resisting you, then where do you start? So it comes down fundamentally to who they have in place. Now, the problem that they have, and that I don't think they anticipated, in both Zaporizhia, in uh, Kherson, and indeed, if they do ever attempt to take anywhere else where they've planted these sort of uh, potential collaborators, is that the kinds of people that are willing to go along with this tend to be quite obscure or strange or fundamentally incompetent. And that is the problem that they've really faced. Um, so here's some good example. They very quickly had to start bussing in administrators from Kaliningrad, you know, proper men in grey suits who knew how to run, you know, an oblast, because the people that they put in charge there were complete morons. Now, they're still there in sort of title only, but they have no power at all anymore because fundamentally, if you left it to them, the whole system would collapse. And that's true, you know, in Zaporizhia as well. It's, it will be true anytime they try anywhere else. And the only reason it's ever worked before in, say, South Ossetia is because the opponent to them in South Ossetia was Georgia, a much smaller country, couldn't take back militarily. Ukraine can take it back militarily. In fact, they're showing, you know, very quickly how they can do it. And so, you know, there hasn't been time for them to embed uh, their new sort of administrators, as I say, the, the competent bad guys, if you like, uh, in a way that they've managed to do elsewhere. And I think that is where uh, fundamentally their playbook falls down. I'm reminded of the truism that, uh, you know, in, in attempting to explain certain phenomena between malevolence and, and incompetence, it's it's usually the latter. <laughs> so I guess that's that's something working for the Ukrainians. Now, you know, as is often the case in open source investigations, I think the the methods and the techniques behind the investigation can be, you know, as interesting as as the story itself. So, Belen, I'm curious if you could walk me through some of the the more creative or or interesting methods you've used to to gather the data. Well, this has been a very complex investigation to gather data because of the sources, right? So, the first thing we have to do is to establish an index of reliability of the sources that we were using. The sources that we use are mainly because they are open sources. They are mainly claims from or uh, the occupation administration or from Russian officials cross-checked and compared with the claims by the Ukrainians residing in the area and living in the area or uh, the Ukrainian authorities that either fled the country or uh, remained there while they were not, they hadn't been, they hadn't disappeared. Um, but of course, it's like sometimes we come across the challenge that one of our key sources disappears. Also, some of the of the testimonies that we've been using is people that have managed to fly um, out of the region. Um, so in order to, to collect sources and to verify uh, the type of information that we were including in this investigation, we, need, we needed to approach uh, each source and establish, you know, like, is this source reliable based on, not based on whether if it's Russian or Ukrainian, but also even if it's Russian and it has provided in the past uh, uh, reliable information that has been uh, verified with open source techniques. This, um, this investigation has relied heavily on Telegram, Telegram conversations, because there is where all the occupation administration has set up their uh, open quotation marks, uh, official uh, close quotation marks accounts. So I'm coming back again to the duplication of power in the region, right? So we have like the, the um, official 
administration of Kherson region still has a website which is not controlled by the Russia-controlled uh, Kherson administration. And the Kherson administration has opened several Telegram channels. So this means that uh, like most of our research has been just like scrolling down um, these, uh, these Telegram channels, like seeing what the Russians are, are saying, seeing what the Ukrainians are saying, and trying to verify uh, the footage and the videos that they are sharing with open source uh, techniques like uh, like satellite imagery, just like providing, like seeing, like if they are claiming that this detention center is now a torture chamber, see where it is placed, like claims from like neighboring residents, uh, like if they are saying that they hear screams at night, things like that. So it's been like, like not more about... Um, uh, being original in what comes to uh, open source intelligence gathering, I think that for that we've uh, followed more um, like the witness methodology that we have for um, our projects, like Eyes on Russia included. It's it has been more about managing and like diving deep into the sources, getting to know the sources, getting to understand where they are coming from. And then monitoring them to see uh, whether they keep providing reliable information or not. Uh, And our analysts have been brilliant at that. What's next for the Eyes on Russia series? Uh, what What other investigations do you have in the works? So we continue to produce uh, a lot of reports on the on the war itself, as you might expect. I suppose from this kind of reporting that we've done on Kherson, there's a number of things that we are looking at that spin out of it that I think are of particular interest for anybody that's been doing sort of counter disinfo, but also counter Kremlin, even counter far right, actually, ops for a long time. One of them that's particularly interesting, actually, is around the weaponization of orthodoxy. So in Kherson, there is a quite prominent priest who seems to be particularly happy to bless the occupiers uh, and bless the uh, administration. A lot of this comes out of really strong historic work by the Kremlin and Patriarch Kirill in particular in trying to curate this sort of brotherhood of orthodoxy, much like they tried to do a brotherhood of Slavs uh, previously to try and convince, you know, not just Russians that this is a just, in fact, a holy war, but try and convince the, you know, the Greek Orthodox, the Cypriot Orthodox, Bulgarian Orthodox, Macedonian Orthodox, and so on and so on. And it's a really interesting operation that they have been undertaking for decades and uh, this is a, a good entry point in it because it's so contained, if you like. It's, it really brings it to home that there is a collaborationist bishop who is essentially the, the holy voice of this war in Kherson. And I think the more that we look into this, the more I'm hopeful, actually, that there will be an understanding that this kind of thing needs to be looked at globally uh, and much wider. We also know, similarly, from the weaponization of children that they've undertaken that Belen has mentioned in the Kherson series, this is very much part of their playbook as well. And I feel like it's something that has exposed a flaw, actually, in their overall strategy, because they, once again, they claim to be the defenders of the family and the defenders of children globally. And yet we can see that they're actually uh, murdering them at great numbers. So I think it's quite likely there's going to be a number of spin-offs of this report specifically. Um, I'm very keen to start it off as one around the infiltration of orthodoxy. Uh, well, I, I'm going to say a few key point, uh, points that I think that are key conclusions from our investigation, which is still ongoing. The first one is that both the referenda and the annexation 
are part of like a power consolidation strategy that started from day one. So they've been progressively, uh, occupation administration coordinated and controlled by the Kremlin has been uh, implementing progressively policies to coerce civilians to cooperate and to make the legitimate authorities of the region to, or either to fly out or outside of the region or to disappear, right? So, but this is not like the referendum annexation are just like the next stage of a power consolidation strategy that is started from the one of the invasion. Um, another thing that I think that is quite relevant is that the right now the Ukrainians that are part of the occupation authority, they are managed and they are being told what to do uh, by, by the Kremlin. So I don't think um, in our research we haven't come across any Ukrainian institution, any legitimate Ukrainian institution in Kherson region that collaborated with Russia. One of the examples is on the 26th of April, uh, the like three key uh, figures of the new occupation administration were appointed, right? It was uh, Vladimir Saldo uh, as head of administration, Kirill Stremusov as deputy head, and Alexander Kovets as mayor of Kherson. They, the three of them, they were appointed by Viktor Bedrik, which is a Russian military commandant of the Kherson region. So he was a Russian that appointed the Ukrainians, no Ukrainians cooperating with Russia. When so uh, the head of administration, Vladimir Saldo, uh, got allegedly poisoned, uh, got health issues. Like I mean, like like sources are contradictory with this, but there are some claims that he got poisoned. So at the beginning of August, he disappeared. There were some claims that he was uh, dead, and uh, somebody uh, like Sergei Yeliseyev uh, took over um, Saldo's position, right, as head of the the Kherson region, like. Officials uh, of the administration were still being appointed, but there was not Ukrainian head in charge. So this means that all the officials were being appointed indirectly from, like directly from, like indirectly from Russia, because you know, like like the Ukrainian that was in charge of appointing the the, the new officials of the occupation administration had disappeared, uh, was allegedly dead, and without a Ukrainian figure and a Ukrainian authority, like officials of the administration were still being appointed. Uh, third point and last point that I would like to make is just the great the great activity of partisan uh, movements and opposition activity, especially the Yellow Ribbon uh, movement, which has been a counter campaigning uh, before the referendum, like with leaflets and in social media. And they have been very active and very brave and very resilient. And even like if some members of the movement have disappeared, they are well organized and they are keep they keep resisting and not just like like opposing to collaborate, they are actively campaigning. And um, our investigation has collected a lot of data that is going to be published in one of the reports, upcoming reports of the series, that tells the story of the Yellow Ribbon movement and these just like brave citizens that are just like, and they, ha they are not even part, they haven't been trained military, they are just like campaigning to tell people not to vote in the referenda and not to cooperate with the Russians. And I think that this is just like, this, this is our mention. I think that last point in particular is a perfect hopeful note to end on. So with that, I'd like to thank you both very much. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. 
please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other shows, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.